Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a chance to turbocharge the government's technology workforce. 3% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30, and only a quarter of them are women. We got to change those numbers. And advice from the leader of the CMMC board. You need to know and understand your own organization, your own network. If you're an account exec, if you're the COO, and you haven't had a good sit down with your CISO or CIO lately, do that because you really can't understand CMMC if you don't understand your own configuration, your own environment. So that's one. It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2021, day three of Cyber Week. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Another round of awards from the Technology Modernization Fund is coming within weeks, according to the Federal Chief Information Officer. Claire Martirana says the TMF board now has more than 100 proposals. She says 75% of them have cybersecurity elements. The Air Force's software factory has its first user agreement in place using the Pentagon's new software acquisition policies. Kessel Run's test and integration chief Jacqueline Torson says the agreement between her organization and Air Combat Command will save the command time and money and cut cyber risks. The new software policy lets Kessel Run and others write short capabilities needs instead of full requirements and start working on design more quickly. A cloud contract at the Department of Homeland Security worth nearly $3 billion is on hold today. John Hewitt-Jones is writing about the protest at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is going on here? Who's protesting what at DHS? Welcome. Yeah, so General Dynamics has has lodged a protest um, with the Government um, Accountability Office over this uh, contract that was um, awarded to Perspecta, which is a subsidiary of Periton. Um, it's a $3 billion award for this cloud migration, for cloud migration services. Um, and General Dynamics uh, broadly alleged that um, DHS failed to properly consider Perspectus' performance record and um, that it unreasonably assessed Perspectus' proposal. What do we know about where the contract stands? Has work begun on this contract at all, or is this uh, something that has not started yet and is completely on hold? Um, the contract has been has been awarded. Um, we don't fully yet have have further details of exactly of, of the current status of the contract, um, but we do know that it's been awarded. Um, uh, General Dynamics already serves DHS with a prior contract, 396 million contract that it was awarded in July to main, maintain services for its lead data center, uh, which is actually a, which is a NASA facility in Mississippi. John Hewitt-Jones, thanks very much. You can read more about that story, all these headlines, and many others at fedscoop.com. Cisco Secure sponsors the Daily Scoop podcast today. Cisco Secure is the largest cybersecurity company in the world. It provides industry-leading SAS-E, XDR, and zero-trust solutions. Cisco's SecureX platform provides visibility across your entire security infrastructure. To learn more, visit cisco.com slash go slash cybergov. 30 technology fellows will make up the first round of people to join the U.S. Digital Corps. The leader of the Corps, Chris Kwong, says he's getting interest from thousands of potential candidates. Nick Sinai is senior advisor and venture partner at Insight Venture Partners. He's former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer. Nick, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What's the significance in your mind of establishing this Digital Corps? Welcome. Hey, Francis. Great to be on your your new show. Congratulations. Uh, Look, uh, right now, um, about 3% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30, and only a quarter uh, of them are women. Uh, we got to change those numbers. Um, if we're going to deliver the government that uh, we all need, uh, we're making outsized uh, ex- um, 
you know, commitments to the American people about about the kind of services we're going to deliver, and and they have increased expectations in a digital age, and so we need the the next generation uh, to participate and and serve in government. And so I'm excited about the launch of the U.S. Digital Corps, which is a two year federal fellowship uh, in a handful of agencies to start. The uh, only fly in the ointment that I saw when I read up on this, Nick, is this. Uh, the Corps is a collaboration among the General Services Administration, OMB, the Office of Personnel Management, CISA, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and uh, the uh, Technology Transformation Services at GSA will run it. All of those organizations being behind this and all of those organizations having a stake in it, is that a feature or a bug potentially, Nick? Oh, I, I see it as a feature. Um, and so there's a program office that is housed in GSA, uh, very similar to a presidential innovation fellow, which has a program office in GSA. Um, and so you'll, you'll have a number of agencies that are hosting uh, digital core fellows for, for two years. Um, and it's, it's being designed so that they'll have a cohort, cohort experience. Um, they'll have a chance to to work with each other, but they'll fundamentally be embedded in in digital data science and cybersecurity teams, where they're they're going to have a chance to be individual contributors, begin their uh, their technology career in high impact places in in federal government. The fact that there's a a, a bunch of of agencies that are involved are a good thing. If you're it, it shows that this is of importance to the administration. The fact that uh, OMB OPM, OSTP, CISA, and GSA are all aligned on the fact that we need more early career technologists in government is a great thing. Um, and uh, it's important to have a single program office um, run by two talented uh, uh, founders, uh, Chris Kwong, who is also a former student of mine and, and a co-founder of Coding It Forward, the uh, summer internship program for federal agencies. Uh, to bring early uh, career technologists into into government, and so, in a sense, this is uh, essentially taking what was a ten week program and turning it into a two year uh, federal fellowship with a um, a government uh, uh, PMO uh, program office. Uh, and then the other co founder is is Caitlin Gandhi. Uh, she's a talented Teach for America exec. Um, and so uh, knowing all that she knows and her experiences with building um, uh, uh, talent programs uh, on mission-focused individuals and, 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 and taking that, that expertise. And so Chris and Caitlin are, are scaling nicely, and, and I expect applications to be open in a week or two, uh, so very soon. Um, and so I expect we'll get a lot of demand from uh, folks in college, but also uh, folks who, who may be uh, reskilling or transitioning, going through alternative education like a boot camp. So it, it really is designed uh, not just to be uh, folks who are starting their technology career from conventional, um, you know, computer science programs in, in college, but also, um, you know, other walks of life who, who have the skills and, and interest in, in serving in federal government. One of the things that they're doing that I think makes so much sense, they're doing the same thing basically that um, Mikey Dickerson and Matt Cutts did at USDS, and that is they're going out and actively evangelizing and recruiting for people. What difference does that make in the kinds of people that you expect will be applying for these spots, Nick? I think it's super important, Francis. Uh, so Susan Rice went to Grace Hopper, uh, well, virtually anyway, and, and you know she said some really important things, if you'll allow me to quote. She said, 
you know, good policy on paper doesn't mean much if it doesn't get to the people it's intended to benefit. Writing legislation is critical, but so is writing the code that makes that legislation mean something. And a modern government needs modern skills, and it works best if it reflects the people it serves. Right. So going out to Grace Hopper, kind of the largest uh, uh, convening convention of, of of women in technology, and actively recruiting. Uh, and they're, I know they're they're doing that in um, historically black colleges and a, a whole number of, of places to actively recruit and and tell uh, early career technology folks that this is a, a great opportunity to start your career. Uh, you don't just have to go to big tech. Um, and so uh, I think it's super important that they recruit from there. If you're Chris Kwong, how do you judge at some point in the future that this worked? And w at what point in the future is it fair to do that, Nick? Well, I think the experience of the first 30 to 50 fellows in government will be key, right? The, you know, I have no doubt that Chris and, and Caitlin will be uh, um, spending a lot of time with those early fellows and seeing what their experiences are like. And if they're having very positive experiences, it will lead to much larger cohorts. The, the vision here is to scale to hundreds or even thousands um, because that's what the need is in, in federal service. Uh, but that's only achievable if you have a, a really good experience among those, those first uh, fellows. Nick Sinai, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about the U.S. Digital Corps in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Day three of Cyber Week includes the mission of the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Natalia Martin is the center's acting director. It's based at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Ms. Martin explains to CyberScoop's Jeff Stone what her office's mission is. NCCUE provide actionable, practical, standard-based, and timely solutions that organization can implement today. Um, and I would like to say that I'm excited about every cybersecurity projects we embarked on. You, you mentioned a few ideas. We're working on uh, big projects such as uh, 5G security, zero trust architecture implementations um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the truth is all of these projects, big and small projects that address uh, maybe certain sectors problems or projects that address generic problems, they're all important because they're all geared toward helping communities and organizations whether it's a U.S. industry, government agency, or really broader public, to transition those standards and technologies into the practice. Um, let me give you just uh, some example of Please. the very recent work that we're embarking on that I, I believe uh, everybody can relate to. Uh, let's think telehealth. I'm sure that uh, in uh, almost two years of COVID, everybody had experience with the telehealth technologies one, one way or another. And I'm sure that many of us had uh, questions around it. Right. Telehealth technology and its use has advanced alongside of Internet of Things. So IoT adoption brings novel capabilities to the consumers and their home. And individuals may use 
voice-activated IoT devices to obtain lab results, schedule visitation with their healthcare team, set reminders for appointment and regimen for the prescription refills, for example, and so on and so forth. So telehealth solution that integrate consumer-owned devices, such as uh, smart speakers with, uh, uh, say, health delivery organization information system, may include atypical threats and vulnerabilities. So our new project will use established guidance and standards, such as NIST cybersecurity, NIST privacy, and NIST uh, risk management frameworks to identify risk and select appropriate controls that can support telehealth smart home integration. Um, I think that, as I mentioned, this project is something that everybody can relate to. It's, but it's a big task, yeah. It is, it is. Yeah. And as I mentioned, timely questions. It doesn't seem like um, this hybrid environment that now we live on, the physical, the, the cyber environment is here to stay. And certainly we need right. to learn how to uh, live in it, how to be resilient in it, and how to be strong. Um, please, I didn't interrupt. I was thinking that certainly in addition to it, we have a lot of work ahead of us with a, a recent executive orders on improving the nation's cybersecurity um, and, and resilience. All this relies on needs to solicit input from the federal government, uh, private sector, academia, and other appropriate actors to identify existing and develop new standards, tools, and best practices. Um, IT landscape lives and evolves in a fast pace. Um, we always or often find ourselves to be in a catch-up mode. However, we always looking at the ways to continue being relevant, um, to really also perform periodic reviews and updates of our information and our guidance and make sure that all this is still applicable and relevant today. So all this important work effort is something I truly look forward uh, to do because it helps all of us to be resilient today. Natalia Martin of NIST, you can find a link to more about the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence and more about Cyber Week in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Thursday's show. Our Cyber Week coverage continues, and you'll get a preview of what the vaccine mandate for contractors will mean for your agency. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Board will have new capabilities online soon. Matthew Travis is Chief Executive Officer of the CMMC Accreditation Board. In his Cyber Week event today, he told FedScoop's Jackson Barnett what the board's biggest challenges are to scaling its model. 
getting enough C3PO's through the system. Those are the organizations. And, and DOD plays a big role in that in terms of the, the DIBCAC, the Defense Industrial Base Cybersecurity Assessment Center. We certainly support that. But on the individual side, those assessors and instructors that you reference, you know, right now we've got over 20 uh, licensed publishing partners who are developing the educational content for all the different levels of all the CMMC professions. We have over 70 licensed training providers nationwide who will then take that curriculum and begin offering those classes, both in person and online. And then we have Scantron as a partner who is poised to then offer the certification exams nationwide. So in terms of a, I think a framework, I think we got a pretty strong architecture. The real X factor is, are there enough Americans who are interested in becoming assessors, either as, either as a, a full-time job or as a, a side hustle? I know it's a tight labor market, so that's probably the one thing that I worry most about. Are there enough interested people to come in to the ecosystem and help us bring this to life? But I, I think on the individual side, we've got a pretty good plan in place. Well, that's fascinating. Actually, you know, I, I, I hadn't heard that concern before and just the you know the tight labor market are, are you working maybe to advertise or how are you working to bring people into that market you know i think we need to do a bit a more aggressive or proactive job in recruiting i think mm -hmm. if we want the best and brightest and we're going to need that because you know there's a lot at stake as you well know jackson in terms of the defense industrial based companies uh aspiring to to get their cmc certification these are the assessors who really We'll be making those assessments and rendering those decisions. So we got to be uh, probably a little more aggressive in recruiting, spreading the good news of what this opportunity is. And if you look at some of the other conformance assessment regimes like CMMI, I think those appraisers and assessors in these types of uh, ecosystems can uh, can make a pretty good living doing this type of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about your relationship with DOD. As you mentioned, you are not a part of DOD, uh, but you do work with them very closely. Um, just give us your assessment on kind of where you are and how you work with DOD to ensure that there is a strong policy behind both um, the marketplace that you're setting up and, and what DOD is putting out. Um, just talk to us about that relationship and kind of what you're working on. It's a very close working relationship. In fact, you know, we are a defense contractor to DOD. It's a no-cost contract, but we, we certainly exist to support them. And, and so mm -hmm. while we're working very closely with them, when it comes to policy, it's they're, they're really the ones that are setting the policy. This, this is their uh, regime. And while we certainly advise and offer our insight and, and data that we have, you know, we are looking for them to, especially during this ongoing internal review in terms of what CMMC 2.0 is gonna look like, uh, we, we continue to work uh, to be agile enough that when those decisions are made by, by Pentagon leadership, the winner positions execute. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the pieces of feedback I hear most often from contractors or those who are just operating in the space is uh, they want to know more. Uh, tell us how you are working to inform people of both policy that DOD is creating and that you are advising them on and things that they need to know that the AB is working on. How do people, you know, how are they going to keep up with uh, all the changes and, and what do you advise on, on those that want to know more? How do they do that? Well, I recognize the, the current frustration because as the department has said, they've kind of gone into internal conclave as they deliberate these implementation right. improvements. And so they haven't really been saying much since, since May. Uh, we have, uh, although obviously we don't have the insight to say what the world's gonna look like when these uh, improvements are announced, but nonetheless, there's still a lot of education, still a lot of outreach. And in fact, we're, we're getting the, you know, the provisional program in place, getting those initial assessments ready to start, getting the first classes for the certified CMMC uh, professionals, which is that first level of the uh, assessor profession started. And so while there's 
not as much coming out of DOD. We've been very active in, in talking to industry. I was just in uh, Northeast Ohio last week, a big manufacturing uh, element of the DIB there in that part of Ohio. A lot of interest, a lot of companies getting ready for CMMC. And so I think while DOD is, is deliberating, uh, we probably need to even be more assertive in getting out there and answering questions. We have the monthly town halls, but they you know, we're doing a lot of uh, you know, trade group and, and other uh, association uh, engagements through webinars and in person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, tell us more broadly than just communications and keeping up with it. Uh, how should the industry be preparing for CMMC? What is the phase that we are in now that they need to be focusing on? What are the steps they should be taking? And you know, give us your advice on the best approach to getting ready for CMMC. You know, I would say we're in a as an ecosystem, we're in the crawl phase of crawl, walk, run. But I think we're going to be starting to walk here soon. So this really is a good time for those dip companies to do three things in, in, my, uh, in my view. One, you need to know and understand your own organization, your own network. If you're an account exec, if you're the COO and you haven't had a good sit down with your CISO or CIO lately, do that because you really can't understand CMMC if you don't understand your own configuration, your own environment. So that's one. Right. Two, then start learning about CMMC and, and there's help out there. Those registered practitioners and registered provider organizations, this is the consulting and coaching part of the ecosystem are there. That part of the, of the ecosystem is up and running. Get help. There are people who can help you prepare uh, as well as plan. And then that third piece is to, to really start the planning process. It's never too early uh, to invest in cybersecurity, even though we haven't seen any mandated pilot contracts coming out of the department yet. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to wait for that. Uh, if you look at the overall threat landscape, there is no turning back. CMMC is, is going to change probably uh, with some of these improvements, but it's not going away. And the earlier you get started, the, the better defensive posture you'll be in terms of preventing those uh, cyber threat actors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll give you an open question here. Tell us something that I didn't get to ask you about. And, and if, if I could, I'll, I'll add one, you know, what is a good piece of feedback that, that, that you have gotten? I, I mentioned that, you know, when I talk with uh, the industry, they, they wanna hear more on policy, they wanna get more communication. So tell us something that we haven't gotten to talk about yet and, and tell us a piece of feedback that, that you've gotten that you think is valuable. So one thing is that we are getting ready. We probably need another month to kind of refresh our brand at the accreditation body and relaunch a new website. Uh, no surprise to anyone, our website is a, a bit antiquated in terms of uh, aesthetic value and, and functionality. And so we've been working hard to, to build a new website and probably kind of refresh uh, our brand. That's probably the, the breaking news I'll share. In terms of the feedback I get, one is to, to be more responsive. We get a lot of communication into the uh, accreditation body we're a small staff and uh, we've got a queue of questions that we need to better answer in a more timely fashion. So I'm trying to build more of the professional staff within the AB in order to answer those questions. But I think the feedback we get is we got a lot of questions. We need people uh, to be more responsive in answering them and we're going to work better to do that. Matthew Travis, the CEO of the CMMC Accreditation Board. You can find a link to his entire Cyber Week event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you've already ranked the podcast and rated it on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it.
The clock is ticking for agencies to comply with new guidance from the Office of Management and Budget on endpoint detection and response. The memo adds to guidance on zero trust, trusted internet connections, and many more. Peter Romnus is cybersecurity program's lead for U.S. public sector for Cisco Systems. Cisco Systems is a sponsor of today's Daily Scoop podcast. Peter, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Zero trust is everywhere, and every agency is thinking about how they're going to approach it. Are we at a risk that since we have a cyber EO, we have input from CISA, we have input from NIST, we have guidance from OMB, that there are maybe too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to zero trust and agencies are not sure which direction to go. Thanks for coming on, Peter. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I kind of have mixed emotions on that. You know, I've been doing cybersecurity for quite a while. And at first we are always screaming, look at me, look at me, listen to me. We got to worry about this stuff. and. And it's kind of the, you know, we're kind of the dog that caught the car now, um, and everybody wants to be a part of it. And while that is an awesome thing um, to have that kind of attention, sometimes it's a, a little bit of a lot of people in your socks that, that um, have an opinion and it, and it makes things a little harder. But I think I'll, I, I'll err on, this, on uh, really being happy about the fact that they're interested finally and that that maybe we'll get some real good uh, security out of this for our country. Do you see zero trust or any of the other techniques that agencies are considering um, driving the federal government as an enterprise or agencies individually toward finally getting ahead of the curve on adversaries or agencies continuing to be kind of reactive rather than proactive, Peter? Yeah, well, you know, zero trust is this huge buzzword in the industry, right? It's, it's um, in many ways, I think a lot of people are sick of it. Um, but I see it as is a little bit different than that is that, oh, my gosh, it's it's a term that people are latching onto and it's bringing attention to this new way of looking at security. Um, and it's not something that I, I can sell you or that any of uh, the other uh, people out there selling cybersecurity can sell. It's a it's an architecture. It's a way of looking at things. I have a good friend who calls it a lifestyle choice. Um, and, you know, yes, we're seeing zero trust come from the uh, White House executive order. Uh, OMB, CISA, NIST are all putting out uh, what they want on, you know, all kinds of guidance on zero trust. Um, but I think it was something that was coming anyway, and it needs to be done. Um, and so, you know, this guidance is all good. And luckily, they're all agreeing with each other. You know, it's not, they're not doing it in a vacuum. They're all talking to each other. And, and boy, have they been prolific. And that's where I wanted to go next. Are you confident that the messages that agencies are hearing from these various sources is harmonious? It sounds like it's that they are to you. Yeah, I think it is harmonious. Um, and, you know, I, there was a conference here in D.C. last week called Billington Cybersecurity Summit. Um, and a lot of these themes rang true there also. Um, you know, zero trust was a huge topic. A, a big part of zero trust is multi-factor authentication. And I think almost every session I was in mentioned uh, multi-factor authentication and how effective that can be. Does zero trust accomplish the balance that practitioners and end users have always fought about, which is obviously the more difficult you make it for the adversary to get into the system, the more difficult a little bit it becomes for end users yeah. to use it. Is this striking that balance that those two sides have been button heads about for years, Peter? I think zero trust is helping realize that balance. I don't think it in itself does. Um, I think the reaction that industry and uh, the users are having is making it easier. 
Um, I, I think uh, users are seeing the need for more security, so they're willing to do things like multi-factor authentication, but also industry has made multi-factor authentication much easier. Um, and you know, no longer do you have to carry a key fob with you and, and get it. You don't always have to have a text sent you with numbers that you got to retype in. You know, you can have a push sent to your phone and all you do is click the, the green check mark and that's your, your second factor. So even users who have always been resistant to multi-factor are saying, hey, that wasn't bad. And also I can see the security that I'm getting from it. I imagine it's also helpful that uh, two-factor authentication is becoming much more common in the private sector uh, yeah. things that people do on a day-to-day -day basis. They kind of get how it works now, right, Peter? Well, yeah, and you know, all these major breaches of uh, they're starting to see a need for it. And you know, I saw an ad today, of, you know, with with uh, a person saying, "Oh, I got I got free parking at this hotel by giving them your email address." Uh, and your mother's maiden name and things like that. So we're even seeing it in culture, right? So it's becoming more accepted. Um, at the same time, it's becoming easier. Is the cultural piece of it maybe the more important piece than the technolo technological piece too, Peter, that folks, since they're used to it, they're more willing to at least cooperate with it if they don't like it uh, and not try to figure out ways around it? Yeah, technology is always the easiest part. You know, getting people to follow and, and getting them to accept it is always the hardest part. You know, I, I had a friend who used to say the hard part is easy and the soft part is hard. <laughs> What's changed that? Is it just the technological advances that companies have made? You, you said a moment ago, two-factor uh, two authentication is easier than it used to be, or is there something else in that mix, do you think, Peter? I think it's it's the uh, the users seeing the need for it. You know, they've, they've felt pain in their life because they didn't have it. Uh, you know, maybe they've had one of their accounts hijacked by somebody. Um, and so they're willing to take that one step that's now easier. You sent me a note before we had this conversation. You used the term in that note I want you to tell the listeners about. And that is the term left of bang. What does that mean? It's a cool term. What does that mean and how does it apply to the topic at hand, Peter? Well, this, this term came up last week and we've been hearing it for a couple of years in the cybersecurity industry. Um, and I think it came from um, disposing of uh, improvised explosive devices and that, you know, when you start looking at taking care of a problem, you look to the left side or before the problem happens. Um, and so in uh, an IED, it's, it's what are the things that lead up to that, that explosion going off? So that's left of bang. Mm -hmm. um, and in cybersecurity, it's looking at the things that you can do before you're breached um, and all of the preventative things that you should be spending more time on rather than just blocking breaches. Has the preventative checklist changed at all given any of the things that we've talked about, two-factor authentication and zero trust architecture and all of that jazz? Does that look different for a CIO or a CISO now in a public sector organization than maybe it did a year ago or two years ago or, or so, so on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the key things about zero trust is that you're limiting access to uh, every uh, asset in your organization, right? And, and so only people who earn trust can get into that. And if a bad uh, actor gets into your environment, that they can't uh, go from one place to another or, or you know, propagate through your network. Mm -hmm. um, and so this whole idea of zero trust, I think, is driving that, that goal um, and, and really making it so that 
you know, if, if you are doing those things on the front end, then you're not going to have the, the boom that we're trying to prevent. If we use that one year or two year time horizon that I just alluded to, and we go back a year or two, zero trust was still kind of on the horizon or maybe even over the horizon uh, at that point. What's on the horizon or over the horizon for a public sector leader today that she should be thinking about? Maybe it's not ready for prime time yet, but is something that's coming along that she should make herself smart about now. Yeah, well, you know, zero trust isn't over. Zero trust is still something that's going to take a while, and it's it's not a one and done thing. It's it's a journey. Um, but I but it's becoming accepted. It's 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 on the road. Um, I think the thing that we're starting to see is this ability to um, make the job of a cybersecurity defender a better job. Um, make it, uh, you know, automate uh, response, automate visibility and control in the environment, make sure that they can see not only what's in their data center and their network, but also all of their data and their people that are all over the place, you know, in the cloud, remote, all of those things. Um, I like to talk about it as it's what we want to do is make the job of a cyber defender suck less. <laughs> Always a noble goal, Peter. It's great yeah. to have you on the program. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. More Cyber Week coverage and a look at contractor vaccine mandates on Thursday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.